I was reading an article recently that's talking about identity theft. Some new data is out. According to this article, 33% of Americans have experienced identity theft at some point in their life. That's roughly one-third of the population of American adults have experienced the fact that their identity has been changed or stolen. By the way, that's double the global average. Here's some other statistics on identity theft. 43% of identity theft was not the result of some sudden act of violence. It was subtle. It began with something that most people would even recognize, but they saw it as something that was unimportant and not a big deal. 45% of victims of identity theft found out roughly three to four months after their identity had been stolen. 20% of victims of identity theft didn't find out for four to five years. As a result, most victims of identity theft never get their identity fully returned. Experts, their advice to us, protect your identity. Because if you don't, it will be costly and you may never get it back. And I was reading an article like that, I began to think about the church and Christians and our identity in Christ. Could the same be true? Is it possible that most of our spiritual identity isn't taken by some sudden act, but it's just subtly sucked away? I mean, what would happen if our identity in Christ was missing? What would happen to the institution of marriage if the model of Christ's love was stripped from it? What would happen to families if the model of the grace and mercy that God showed us that as parents we're supposed to share with our children and our grandchildren, where would the family be? Where would the church be if little by little we began trusting in government institutions instead of God's direction and truth. What would happen if the unity of the Holy Spirit slowly got sucked out of our identity and we began segregating ourselves based on political party, skin color, language, or economic group? What would happen to the church if our identity in Christ was stripped away? For some of you, that may be a concern. Brian, I'm glad you're bringing that out. I'm worried about it. I see some, I don't have to imagine, Brian, I can see our Christian identity being slowly ripped away. Others of you might think we're already too far gone. But that's why I'm excited about this series. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a fantastic church just like you. It's not a letter written to confront error, to combat sin. It's a letter to exhort and encourage good Christians who are part of a great church to protect their identity in Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the book of Ephesus, or not the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, written to the people of Ephesus. You know, the Ephesian church, a powerful 
a powerful part of Paul's third missionary journey. The book of Acts tells us that Paul spent roughly two years in the city of Ephesus ministering. His ministry on one part was powerful. I mean, he was healing people and people would actually take his sweat rags and take it to their sick neighbors and family members and they would be healed by the sweat rags of the Apostle Paul. But after two years of the gospel being preached to a kooky culture like Ephesus, man, that whole entire region was changed. Temples that used to be visited by tourists were suddenly shuttered. People would come from all over to buy idols from the artisans of Ephesus, and people stopped buying idols. I mean, the gospel was so impactful of the region of Ephesus that their entire economy changed. And as a result, there was this huge riot. Because of that, Paul left and continued on his missionary journey. But years later, he wrote a letter to his friends in Ephesus, his friends who had witnessed God do miraculous things, good Christians who had experienced the grace and mercy of truth, who had been instructed by Paul himself. He wrote them a letter to remind them of their identity and exhort them to live it and protect it. So now, if you're not in the book of Ephesians, uh, you have another chance to turn there. It's the beginning of every series. I also want to introduce our sermon guides. Pastor Jeff, our office staff, a ton of volunteers, they assemble these for you for two reasons. Number one, we really believe that you need a place where you can jot notes, write down things that come to your mind, things that you learn, things that God reveals to you on a Sunday. If you're anything like me, sometimes I forget what I preach by Wednesday. So it's important that you have a place where you can write down something you learned, something that God revealed to you in the sermon. But for the second reason, we really think if you want to have an identity in Christ and have it protected, it takes more than an hour on Sunday. It takes a people, a community smaller than this, that you can grow in the image of Jesus and have the truth of his word wash over your life throughout the week. So our hope is that you'll go through those questions. You go through them with your buddies at work, your friends at school, your family, your small group, but our hope is that you continue to wrestle with the truths of God's word throughout the week. These uh, sermon guides are in three formats for you. Old school, print, spiral bound, on paper. I know some of you are like, Brian, there's just nothing like a pencil and paper. Fantastic, we have you covered on your way in. There were study guides available for you on the table. Some of you might have missed it, so it's always customary for us this first week that you raise your hand, and I likely will not belittle you for it. Raise your hand, leaders of our church, they are ready to bring one to you. If you didn't pick up a study guide or I convinced you to grab one, just raise your hand, and they will bring one to you. Raise your hand pretty high so they can see it's a little dark in here. Uh, right up here, Otho, is right up front. Uh, if you're like, Brian, I don't need another thing to carry around on Sunday, that's fantastic. That's why we have two digital formats. One is our PDF on our webpage. You can download the entire sermon guide on your phone, on your iPad, computer, whatever you want to do. Just go to cvcchurch.org, 
and look for the series study guide icon there next to the identity artwork. Or you can download the Chino Valley Community Church app. Go to the app store, Chino Valley Community Church, look for the app, download it. Down at the bottom, you see sermons, and then you just click on notes, and that'll be provided for you each and every week. So uh, now that we've gotten all that out of the way, let's, let's get into our text. I got, a, I got a text this week from someone that says, Brian, this better be a short sermon. You're only doing two verses. We're only doing two verses because there's a lot in it. Ephesians chapter 1 starts in verse 1 where Paul begins with explanation of his identity. I love how Paul starts this. When he's starting a whole letter on the importance of someone's identity, Paul starts with his. I mean, this is the apostle Paul. He doesn't need a lot of explanation. He doesn't need a lot of introduction to these people in Ephesus. Man, he spent two years planting this work. He worked with them. He endured abuse with them. Listen to what he said. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It says, Paul, an apostle. It's a term of great importance. Describes someone who is an authorized and official messenger of Jesus Christ. Paul's asserting, listen, I know who I am. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm an authorized messenger of the truth of God. And lest you think that he's full of himself, it's like, wow, Paul, that was really proud and arrogant of you to just claim your title. Look at what else he says. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm an official messenger of Jesus Christ. Look at this, by the will of God. Paul said, I'm not an apostle because of my amazing intellect, although most think Paul was just brilliant. I'm not an apostle because of my Ivy League education. I'm not an apostle because of my financial stature. I'm not an apostle because of my language or my skin color. I'm an apostle by the will of God. A term will is under to, be, uh, to be understood as for God's pleasure. Paul begins his letter. Here's my identity. I'm an apostle. I'm an authorized messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. I'm nothing special on my own. In fact, in another letter, Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm still a work in process. I mean, the only reason I am who I am and the only authority that I come before you in isn't my authority, it's not my wisdom, it's not my power. I'm here strictly because of the pleasure of God. By his will, by his de determination, by his statement, by his work, I'm here solely because of Jesus. I thought, man, what a, what a great way to start a letter on identity, the Apostle Paul. I mean, other letters he opened up with the beginning of, here's my education, here's who I am, here's my accountability, here's how you can trust what I say, not with the people of Ephesus. Nope, I'm Paul. You know me. God did miraculous things through my life. I'm here. I'm the apostle because of what Jesus did, because of his authority, because of his will. I thought, what a, what a powerful reminder for church leaders. Remind me of something the apostle Peter wrote. 
He wrote this, he said, therefore I exhort the elders among you as, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter had that same response. Hey, I'm nothing special. I'm a fellow elder, I'm just one of you. A partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Look at this, not under compulsion. Not because you have to, but voluntarily because you want to, according to the will of God. There it is. Man, elders, church leaders, you're not where you're at because of your wealth, because of your intellect, because of your power, because of your awesomeness. You're there because of the will of God for God's pleasure, for God's purpose. Serve them with eagerness because you're excited to see what God's going to do in their midst. Don't lord it, over, lord it over as those allotted to your charge. And you're in the position because God put you there, not because you deserved it, not because you're any better. Big biblical but right there, but proving to be examples to the flock. I mean, the Apostle Paul's approaching Ephesus saying, listen, I'm an authorized messenger of Jesus Christ, not because of anything I've done or anything I've earned or anything I've achieved. I'm there strictly because God put me there. Peter says the same thing. I thought, what a great reminder for us as a church. See, it's September, and this is where we nominate elders. Our church is an elder-led church. I'm not in charge. I'm one voice on the elder board, and we do that on purpose. Number one, we believe the Bible teaches it. Number two, we just think it's smart. Because those of you who know me know I'm fallible. In fact, I would contend all pastors are. So we have an elder board of, of 10. And every year, a third of the elder board switches over. And every year, we come to you and say, I want you to nominate invite you to nominate elders who are leaders who fit the qualifications who are called by the will of God who model a Christian character these nomination forms are at the information center if you're looking for the information center it's just right out in the courtyard under the big tent you can't miss it you can fill it out I'd love to invite you to do that fill out that form nominate people that you think God has called but after Paul goes into his identity, Paul began his letter with his identity. Now Paul gets into yours. Paul says, hey, I'm just an apostle. I'm just a guy called by God, empowered by God, and serving the Lord. He said, now I'm writing to you. Look how he described it. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. I love that. He looks at the church of Ephesus, and I would contend to the church now as well. He says, you're saints. If you look up the term saints on Google, it'll say holy and virtuous after death. You know, there's many traditions, especially in the Catholic Church, where they define saint as, as this hierarchical stature given to you after death. But here's, there's a long process, and it goes through a committee. If you want to be a saint, in some traditions, after you're dead, they look through your life and they make sure that you had a virtuous life, a life of honor, a life that demonstrated the work of God in your life. Not only that, but you had to do two demonstrable miracles. 
either during your life or after, two miracles. And then maybe, if you had a virtuous life and accomplished two miracles, maybe you can become a saint. I just want to tell you, that's kooky. That's not the Bible. Paul's looking at Ephesus saying, y'all saints, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. A saint is described as someone who is holy, set apart, someone who's been cleansed, sanctified, someone who is now sacred to God. Paul's looking at his people. It says he's not talking about people who died and three years later demonstrated two miracles. He's writing to his people. Do you know who you are? You are a saint, set apart, declared holy and righteous. And look at this. To the saints who are at Ephesus, we're faithful. Now look at how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. He said this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Man, you are sanctified. You are a saint not because of your education, not because of anything you achieved, not because of anything you bought, not because of who you are or who you will become. You are a saint wholly because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Paul says, I'm writing to saints, people who are set apart, who are faithful, trustworthy, someone who is living a life worthy of their title of saint. It's not someone who merely claims the work of Jesus in their life, but someone who models it. Paul says, I know who I'm talking to. And I might wonder, how is it possible to live a, a life as a saint in kooky California like this. It's possible for them. Man, when God started the work of Ephesus, it was a dark place. It was a haven for idolaters. Two years after the gospel was preached to Ephesus, the entire region was changed. Paul says, look, I'm an apostle. I'm an authorized messenger of God all because of God's power. And he says, you, you're a saint. You are set apart. You're an instrument that's declared holy to have influence on your kooky culture. He says this at Ephesus, who are faithful. How is this possible? He finishes the same way in Christ Jesus, because of Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. How can you be called a saint? Because of the work that Jesus has accomplished in your life. I guess my question is, do you know who you are? And you're no longer a weakened vessel of sin to just sit here and wait for Jesus to return. You're a sanctified, holy instrument of God, declared that way by his power, if you have received the sacrifice of Jesus in your life. So, Brian, big deal. What benefit is there? What, what good is it to be a saint of Jesus in kooky California? I'll tell you, look at verse two. 
Here's the benefits of who you are. Paul says, to the saints, I'm writing this letter to the saints, to those people who have experienced the power of God, and it has set you apart from everyone else. It has transformed your life, filled you with the power of the Holy Spirit, and empowered you for a ministry within your culture that can transform an entire region. Paul says, yeah, I'm talking to you. And you've been doing it. Man, the church of Ephesus, one of the greatest churches in history. I've been around the block a while. I want to tell you, man, I'm not saying you're one of the greatest churches in history, but I'll tell you this. You're one of the greatest churches in the valley. You've seen God do amazing things in your time. And you have sought to be faithful in the midst of some of the toughest and kookiest times within the last 10 years. And yet your reputation is one of mercy, generosity, acceptance and respect through some of the kookiest, hardest times. I mean, you have come through with a reputation of being trustworthy. Paul says, I'm writing to you. And look at what he gives. Look at the benefits. Verse two, grace to you. Grace to you. That term grace is defined as unmerited favor of God the amazing kindness of God bestowed on those who are unworthy of it. Paul proclaims on their life the true benefit of grace. Paul says, to the saints, I give you grace. You might be saying, well, Brian, that doesn't make sense. They're already saved. If they're saints, how do they need more grace? I don't think Paul's saying, I give you extra grace. Paul is saying, I want you to experience grace. See, there's one thing to understand the theological power of what Jesus has done. But aren't there times where we still, even though we know Jesus has forgiven our sins, that we still don't experience it? Don't you still struggle with guilt and shame? Don't you still try to hide some of your brokenness and hopes that your Christian friends don't find out? Man, I think one of the greatest aspects of the Christian life is fear that our Christian friends won't accept us for who we are. Man, how is it that a group of people that come together on the sole belief that Jesus has forgiven us of all of our failures and cleansed us from all of our sins and we are no longer held accountable for the failures before us, but by God, if our Christian friends find out, whoo, Elsewhere in scripture, the Bible tells us, confess your sins to one another. And through that, you'll be restored and made whole. I mean, you wanna know one of the best benefits of the Christian church? It's not just being taught the grace of God. It's the ability to experience the grace of God. I can tell you the two most powerful times in my Christian life have been when I deserve judgment from the church and I've received mercy from the church. The Apostle Paul's telling his friends, man, I'm writing this letter to saints. This is your identity. You have been purchased by God, empowered with his spirit to be instruments of his glory amidst culture. The first benefit, grace to you. Man, may you experience the grace of God. The peace that surpasses human comprehension. That's next. 
But man, if you want to experience peace, the first thing you have to do is experience grace. Here's my question. Have you experienced grace? Have you allowed the church to be aware of your brokenness so they can embrace you after? Man, you know this in your head. You know Jesus has forgiven you. So why is it that you're still hiding it from everyone else? Paul says, grace to you. I encourage you, if you don't have a people, if you don't have a place where you can confess your brokenness before God and be embraced after, you're missing out one of the best, missing out on one of the best parts of being a saint. Paul says, grace to you, unmerited favor. You're a great church. I pray you experience the unmerited favor of God more and more in your life. Not only grace from God, but peace. The absence of fear, anxiety that comes with complete restoration with God. Paul says, I'm going to give you peace. Peace that's beyond human comprehension. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes it. In Philippians, he says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And look at this. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace, the absence of fear and anxiety that comes with complete restoration with God. Man, when you experience the grace of God, there's this peace that just overwhelms your soul. Peace that other people don't quite understand. And I would, I would confess the peace that oftentimes we don't understand as well, and yet we have it. I guess my question for you, where do you need grace? Where do you need peace? Paul's writing this to good Christian people, a great church just like yours. Paul begins that here's my identity. I'm no one special. I'm just special because of the will of God in my life. And I'm writing to you. You're not special either. The only thing that makes you special is the will of God in your life. You're a saint if you've accepted Christ. You're a saint set apart, made holy. And the benefits is that you would experience the grace of God and the peace of God in your life. three questions I came up with after this message. Number one, have you received the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ? Do you have that new identity from Jesus? Some of you might say, Brian, I, I, I don't have that identity. I don't experience grace. I don't have peace because I don't know Jesus. Man, I would love to rectify this right now. You're not a saint because you go to church. You're not a saint because you give money to the ministry. You're a saint solely because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in your life and you accepting it. In just a moment, if you're like, Brian, I'm not a saint, but I'd love to be. I'd love to lead you in that. Another question is for you. You know, September's Reach Month, where we spend every Sunday for a month praying that God would bring someone to our life, someone 
that God has placed in a relationship with us that they might see who Jesus is in a clear way. Who is that for you? When God gives you a name and you're, you're ready to share your faith with them, write their name on that whiteboard. It's not for us to keep track of all that God does. It's so it's a reminder for us as a church that we can be praying for them and praying for you. Don't write their whole name. That might get weird when they show up at church. Hey, what's my name doing on that board? Just write their first name. And then pray that God would use you as a saint, as someone who's been set apart for the glory of God to impact culture and introduce them to who Jesus is. My third question, if you are a Christian, do you have grace and peace in your life? It's my belief there's a lot of good Christian people who love Jesus, who are living in guilt and shame, keeping Christians at an arm distance in hopes that they don't figure out, hopes that their friends never find out the dark parts of their past. Here's my encouragement to you. Find one or two people and good people who love Jesus that you trust. Open your heart and allow them to show you the grace of God that we preach about and we know about. May you experience the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. It's what you deserve as a saint. Let's pray. God, as a church, we come before you this morning. God, many of us here because of our shared belief. Our shared belief is that you are real. That you created everything from nothing. That you sent your son to die on the cross for us. To pay the penalty of our sins. God, that we might have communion with you. God, we're here because we're a group of broken people who are only here because of your, your mercy, your grace. God, none of us are righteous. And yet, God, you give us the opportunity to be called a saint. So, Jesus, first I pray for people here who have yet to receive your mercy. People who have been sitting on the outskirts wishing they could maybe be a part of a community with you, but feeling unworthy, unable to rectify things with you. God, I pray for those people who are yet to be saved. May you open their eyes right now so they can see you as I do. They might recognize you for who you are. They would hear your mercy, your offer of forgiveness for them. And Jesus, may you give them courage and faith because that they would have the ability to confess their sins to you. God, we know you already know them. So Jesus, they... As they lift their brokenness to you, Jesus, may you forgive them as you promised.
May they hear from you. My grace is sufficient for you. May they experience your grace for the first time. May they experience your peace that's beyond human comprehension as they entrust their life into your hands. And Jesus, may you fill them with your spirit just as you've promised. Transform them into a saint even today, God, that they may be a viable and powerful instrument for your glory. God, for the rest of us here who claim you, God, my first request, you give us a name, one person you've put in our life for the sole purpose of us introducing them to you. God, may you not only give us that name, but God, may you empower us and give us boldness in our heart, God, that we would approach them and share what you've done in our life with them. God, finally, for these church people, God, may your grace and your peace fill their life today. May they not only understand the theology and the power of your grace, but God, may they experience it through their relationship with us. God, as we're surrounded by kooky culture, struggles at home, worries in life, fear of the future, God, may you give us what you've promised as we place our lives into your hands. May you give us a peace that's beyond human comprehension as Jesus Christ guards our soul. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.